Would you guys uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 21. We are almost to the end of our study in John's Gospel. Um, I, don't, I think Pastor Billy mentioned this last week, but he's actually out of town with his son Will Rays in the Houston area at a father and son retreat that they are actually leading together. So Pastor Billy's speaking at the retreat uh, and Will is leading worship for the retreat. So that's just been a, a sweet uh, weekend for Pastor Billy and Will uh, to be able to serve together. Um, so that's where he and uh, I'm assuming Jan is with him. Do you know Alan? Is Jan with him? Okay, yeah. Uh, I don't know if she went or not. I can't remember. Um, so anyway, that's where Pastor Billy is, and that's why you guys get me today uh, preaching the word to us. Um, we are in John 21, so we're, we're at the end. We've got just a few verses left, and can you believe it? I mean, it's been over a year. No, it's not been quite a year. I think we started in November last year. Uh, so almost a full year we've been studying this, uh, this book together. Um, last week... Our text ended with the words, these are written, this is in verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again and again, throughout our study, we've come back to these words, haven't we? They're the summary of John's purpose for writing his entire account. Believe in Christ Jesus and have life in his name. And it almost seems like end of chapter 20 there, that'd be a great fitting way to end the book. Jesus is resurrected. He's secured a few eyewitnesses. He promises to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples and nice and neatly kind of ends with this purpose statement in verse 31. And many scholars actually believe this to be the case, that John 21 was a later addition to the Gospel of John, even though in my admittedly limited research this past week, I didn't really find much convincing evidence to support that position. They had all kinds of reasons why guys do that. If you're interested in that kind of thing, like talk to me and I can point you in some directions to further investigate. But whether it was included in the original publication or later as an addition, uh, we can trust. This is what we can trust. We can trust that John 21 has been sovereignly preserved by God himself in the canon of Scripture, which is his authoritative, authoritative and infallible word. So, as we'll see this week and Pastor Billy next week, John has a purpose for including John chapter 21. Uh, chapter 21 kind of functions as sort of an epilogue for John's gospel. And in our text this morning, the author apparently intends to direct his reader's attention to one final appearance of the resurrected Messiah to his disciples. So let's read John 21. We're going to read verse 1 through 8. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. Let's pray. Lord, I was just looking around during worship and um, seeing the faces of our church body uh, singing to you, singing praise to you, confessing their confidence in you, rejoicing in your mercy. Um, Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for 
the people that you gather together each Sunday here and that, that call SGC home. Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to be a part of this local body, Lord. And um, Lord, thank you for the privilege that we as a local body get every Sunday to sit under the preaching, the faithful preaching of your word, Lord. And that's what I ask. Lord, I ask that this morning would be faithful preaching, Lord, that you would be glorified as we consider your word this morning, or that you would, um, you would receive glory, that, that all of our hearts, Lord, that, that this would not be something that we, that we miss, Lord. Lord, you want to speak to us this morning. There's, there's a text that you've prepared that, that you want delivered to us in, in a particular way this morning. Just like these disciples found themselves here in, in Galilee after your resurrection for a particular purpose. Lord, you have a particular purpose for us gathered here this morning. Lord, so would you speak to us, Spirit of God? Illuminate this word to our hearts. Uh, make, make it real or make it understandable or compel us to want to respond to your word. Do this, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Well, I have to admit, I don't really know very much about fishing. Um, I know I grew up in southeast Louisiana, maybe you didn't know that. I'm from New Orleans, uh, so I really don't have a good excuse. I do love eating fish and, and seafood and stuff like that, but I really don't know much about how to catch them. I have a photo of my son, Aiden, and uh, from the first time that, uh, that we went fishing, and I think I got that photo here to show you guys. So there it is, little baby Aiden. Um, you know, he's probably three or four years old. I'm there holding him in one arm, big fish in the other arm, big cheesy smile on my face, you know. It was a proud dad moment, uh, and if I hadn't told you anything about me not knowing anything about catching fish, you might look at this picture and think, what, what a great memory, that dad giving his son an opportunity to catch his first fish, and you'd be dead wrong if that's what you thought, because <laughs> that's not at all what actually happened uh, that day. See, my buddy Don Ray, uh, back in New Orleans, he is a fisherman, uh, and he was kind enough to take Aiden and me out with him and his son to Cocodri. It's this area in, uh, off the coast of Louisiana. It's this big fishing place. Uh, Don Ray had heard that I hadn't really done much, if any, fishing, if we're honest, and wanted to give me an opportunity to catch some speckled trout with my boy. And I, I thought it would be a wonderful experience. You know, my young son and me bond together, doing something manly, helping him catch his first fish. But what we actually experienced out on the bayou that day was not what I expected. First of all, Aiden was unimpressed uh, with the whole experience. I mean, he was only four, but he really, all he really wanted to do was to throw things into the water uh, and not try to fish things out of the water. I ended up having to fish things out of the water that he threw into the water. And in his, in his defense, I, I wasn't doing a, a very good job showing him how enjoyable it could be to fish things out of the water because uh, we were out there for several hours and all I could apparently do was reel in cast after fishless cast, embarrassing myself until I think Don Ray, he just probably couldn't handle another second of my fishing incompetence. Uh, so he offered his rod to me, which probably had like his 30th catch of the day on it, and said, at least you could tell people you reeled one in. <laughs> so you know, I, I appreciate Don Ray's willingness to help me feel like I caught a fish, but looking back on it, I mean, I really felt like a failure. <laughs> uh, it was a pretty humiliating, it is a pretty humiliating memory. And maybe it was just a coincidence, but Don Ray never invited me to go fishing with him again. <laughs> um, but do you know what's most humbling about that entire encounter? It's, if you could put it back up, it's that picture. And it's not the like splotchy, baby-faced beard that I'm sporting there. That, that's not what's, I mean, that's humiliating in itself. But what, what's humiliating about that is every time I look at that picture, I remember that I posed with a fish I didn't catch. That's embarrassing. In a very real sense, the only way I would ever get that fish into this hand so I could immortalize that picture would be for me to rely on the ability of someone else to help me catch it. And I think that's a lesson that Jesus is attempting to teach his disciples in our text this morning. That lesson, oh, and, and it's a lesson that Jesus wants to teach you and me as well, not just his disciples. And that lesson, and this is our main point for today, 
if you're taking notes, and I'm sorry, I don't have notes for you. Um, notes are hard to make. I don't know if you ever tried to make notes for a presentation you're doing, but it's not an easy thing to do. And so I'm sorry, I don't have any. Uh, listen, hopefully the Lord will speak to you and you can take your own notes. But here's the main point for today. Uh, fruitfulness in our mission requires reliance on our Messiah. Let me say that again. Fruitfulness in our mission requires reliance on our Messiah. So before we get into the text, let me just ask a couple of questions. What is, what is the mission of your life? If you had to think about that, what would you say? The mission of your life. Now, on one level, we all have the same mission, don't we? It's the same mission the disciples had, the same mission that's been given to all Christians everywhere for all times. Go into all the world, Preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the universal Christian mission. But I'm asking you to think a little bit more personally about that. How has God uniquely called you to live out that mission? What might fruitfulness in your mission, your specific way that you're called to live out that mission, what might fruitfulness look like for you? Just think about a couple of our demographics here. Teenagers. Do we have any teenagers still in here? Raise your hand if you're a teenager. Okay, we've got a few of you guys. So what, what might fruitfulness look like in your call as a mission, on mission uh, for Christ? It could look like growing in Christ-likeness. It could look like developing spiritual disciplines or learning to spend your passions on that which is profitable and not that which is wasteful. It looks like being a compelling witness to your friend, your friends. What about you singles and young marrieds? What does fruitfulness in your mission look like? Could look like establishing solid spiritual foundations, being generous with your time and money, using your season of life and your availability and your energy to build God's church and serve God's church, serve God's people. What about you parents of toddlers? <laughs> Now, you guys are probably tempted to overdo it, if I remember those years. Um, fruitfulness in this season of your mission is keep your toddler alive, clean up their messes, deal with their temper tantrums. Actually, it's not all that different than the parents of teenagers. <laughs> oh. But parents of toddlers, you're, you're, you're on mission. Do you realize that? Do you, do you think about that? You're on mission. What is your mission? What does fruitfulness in your mission look like? What about husbands and wives? Fruitfulness in your mission looks like deepening your love for one another, growing in patience and respect for one another, being faithful to one another, using your marriage to be a, an, a compelling example of the gospel to your kids, to your family, your extended family members, to your neighbors that live right next to you. What about business owners? I think we have a few of those in here. What does fruitfulness look like for you on mission? Using your leadership position as an opportunity to serve those under your care. Looking for opportunities to share the gospel with your employees and your clients. And maybe one more category that I thought of, senior saints. What does it look like for you senior saints? We took some time on Wednesday night to pray for you. Thank God for you senior saints that are in our midst. Thank you for uh, your faithfulness to the gospel uh, thank you for your example to us who are coming behind you. Um, but what does it look like for you senior saints to have fruitfulness in the mission that God's called to you in this season of life? I know I can already feel this at 40, but I imagine that as you get older, the temptation might be to let your growing physical limitations keep you from being as fully engaged as you can be in the spreading of the gospel, especially in prayer and in financial support as you're able to. And in passing along the wisdom of your experience to the generations coming behind you? Well, in our text today, I think Jesus is teaching his disciples that their fruitfulness in ministry is directly tied to their reliance on him as their Messiah. If they try to be fruitful in their mission by relying on their own wisdom and initiative, they will come up empty-handed, and we'll see that. In order for them to be truly successful in the mission he's called them to fulfill, they will need to rely upon the presence of Jesus to guide and direct them, just like we need. 
So let's get into our text. John begins chapter 21 in this way. This is verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples. Actually, and John reminds us of this uh, in chapter 21, verse 14, that this is actually the third time that Jesus reveals himself to them. So if you haven't been counting, thank you, John, for the help. Uh, The first time Jesus had appeared to his disciples was on the evening of his resurrection, after first appearing to Mary at the tomb early that morning. Jesus had been lying dead in a tomb less than 24 hours before, but then he was somehow suddenly inside the locked room of his terrified disciples, standing among them, showing them his wounds, breathing on them, and talking about sending them on the same mission the Father had sent him to do. It's no wonder he had to tell them twice, peace be with you. Like, calm down, guys, it's going to be okay. Then, eight days later, the disciples are again gathered together in a locked room, no doubt still trying to process the encounter with the risen Jesus the week before. But this time, John told us, and we saw this last week, this time Thomas was with them. He had missed out on the first appearance of Jesus the week before, and he still seemed a little skeptical about this whole God's not dead thing. But when Jesus appears among them this second time, he invites Thomas to come and actually examine his scars. And Thomas' belief is restored, and he declares Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then we get to chapter 21, and John tells us, again in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. That word revealed, it means manifested, disclosed, made known. This is what Jesus is coming to do for his disciples for the third time since his resurrection. And Jesus had spent the last three years doing this, revealing himself to his disciples, helping them to see and believe him to be the Son of God. But now, after his resurrection, it's almost as if he's re-revealing himself, making himself known to them as not only their crucified, but their resurrected Savior, manifesting his risen glory to them. Why? Begs the question, why? What specifically is Jesus wanting to reveal to his disciples about himself for this third time? Well, I think the rest of verse 1 and 2 at least start to give us a clue. So look back at verse 1. Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Okay, so there's a clue. Then he gives us a list of names. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were what? Were together. Okay, so maybe that's a clue. In this way, and they were together. John tells us that this revelation of Jesus to his disciples takes place. So it gives us the location. It takes place by the Sea of Tiberias, which is otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. And John also gives us a list of the names of the disciples present at this third appearance of Jesus. It's a list, if you count it, of seven of Jesus' disciples, a particular group of men who would all have had something in common with each other. And that thing in common would have been that they were all from Galilee. They were all fishermen. Simon Peter is listed first, perhaps because he always seems to kind of assume the role of a sort of unofficial leader for the disciples. Uh, And then he and his brother Andrew were fishermen from Galilee. Remember what they were doing when Jesus called them to follow, in Matthew, follow him in Matthew 4, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 4, verse 18? It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 19 says, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. So that's Simon. Thomas, who we saw last week, is historically believed to have been from Galilee, though his birthplace isn't technically mentioned in the Gospels. I just wonder if John makes sure to mention him by name to let us know, uh, let his readers know that after the Doubting Thomas episode that happened, Thomas is all the way in. He wants to be where the action is. He's not going to miss out on anything else. Then our text plainly tells us that Nathaniel was from Cana in Galilee. His brother Philip, Nathaniel's brother Philip, is the one who had told Nathaniel about the man spoken of by the prophets back in John chapter 1, Jesus of Nazareth. And you may remember Nathaniel's memorable, memorable response, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> um, so that's Philip and Nathaniel. And then we have the sons of Zebedee. Uh, they were James and his brother John, John, who is the author of this gospel. They too were from Galilee. When they were called by Jesus, they were literally mending their fishing nets in a boat with their father Zebedee, who who they left. They ended up leaving him to go and follow Jesus. 
And then lastly, there's these mysterious two unnamed disciples. And although we don't know for certain, uh, it seems like it's generally accepted that these guys were Andrew, which was Simon Peter's brother, uh, and they're often always kind of together, and Philip, uh, who is almost always pictured alongside Nathaniel. So that's kind of the seven guys that is in our, uh, in our story today. All these guys from Galilee. It was their stomping grounds. They grew up here. They knew everyone. Everyone knew them. And they had worked here as fishermen. But they had left this place. So it was an important place to them. It was home. But they had left this place to go follow Jesus as he had called them out of the business of catching fish and had instead commissioned them to be what? Fishers of men. They had spent three exhilarating years with Jesus, traveling the Judean countryside, witnessing the lame walk and the blind see and the prisoner set free and the sick healed. And then they had watched in terror and horror as their friend and Lord was justly, unjustly crucified, not justly, unjustly crucified. And now it seems that Jesus had actually been able to accomplish what he had always been promising to do. He had actually resurrected himself from the dead. So, I mean, their minds have just got to be spinning. This is only just a couple of weeks after that. I'm sure they could hardly wrap their minds around it. But they knew they had been given an assignment. And that assignment was go to Galilee. Well, how do I know that? If you turn with me, if you want to kind of look real quickly to Mark, uh, we're going to go to a couple of different places in Scripture, but turn over to Mark chapter 14. And this was uh, the account of Jesus on the night of his crucifixion after sharing the Passover meal and singing a hymn with his disciples. Jesus made a bold prediction. I don't know if you remember this. Mark chapter 14, verse 21, he said, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Okay, they weren't in Galilee, they were in Jerusalem, but Jesus says, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. And then, after Jesus was raised from the dead, an angel appeared in the empty tomb, reminding the disciples of this instruction that Jesus had given him. Look in Mark chapter 16, verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. That Jesus, that, that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There, in Galilee, you will see him, just as he told you. So the angel tells the disciples that. So it seems that Jesus, in his divine foreknowledge, had intentionally planned to meet his disciples in Galilee. He seems to have asked them to wait for him in their hometown. So he might reveal himself, as John says at the end of verse 1, back in chapter 21 of John, that he might reveal himself in this way. So that's what the disciples do. They go back to Galilee and they wait. Now, commentators are all over the spectrum here from a sermon I saw entitled Audacious Disobedience uh, to a commentator who swears the disciples were doing nothing but making the best use of the time. Uh, we don't really know why the disciples, John doesn't tell us why they aren't sitting around a table twiddling their thumbs like they were doing in some of the other reveals, like afraid and terrified. Um, maybe they got distracted or impatient, or maybe they just wanted to go relive some of the glory days, uh, or maybe they're just hungry. But whatever their motive, as the disciples waited in Galilee for Jesus to arrive, what do they do? They, they do what you would expect fishermen to do. They go fishing. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. <laughs> uh, Peter, who tends to be the first to act, he says, I'm going to go fishing. And everybody in the group says, all right, let's go do it. Uh, and it's worth restating, these men, they weren't incompetent wannabe fishermen like I was that day. <laughs> these were professionals. These, this was their job. This was their livelihood. And, and that just makes what happens on this particular night especially intriguing. Look at the second half of verse 3. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. They caught as much as I caught that day in coquetry. Nada. Zippo. A big fat zero. Actually, they caught less than I caught because I at least got to reel one in. They didn't even get to do that. This is certainly not what you would expect from a group of their caliber. And that had to be, just think about it, it had to be so frustrating to them, so humiliating. 
and I don't know, maybe a little disorienting for these professional fishermen. They hadn't really spent their careers doing that the last several years. Uh, So maybe it was like kind of humbling for them to have to do that. Because if anything, if there was anything they were good at, it was this. It was fishing. But not this night. This night, they had been at it for hours. They were ready to give up. They were wet and exhausted and hungry. And if I had to guess, probably pretty stinky. And worst of all, they have absolutely nothing to show for all of their toil and labor. That is, until the sun begins to peak over the horizon. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. That's important. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. All right, so remember, the disciples don't know it's the Savior calling out to them from the shoreline. For all they know, this is just some puffed up, self-proclaimed fishing expert looking for opportunities to show off his fishing know-how. But do you see what Jesus is doing? He's doing what he's always doing. Even though his disciples haven't thought, it seems, to call out for Jesus to help, Jesus comes to them. Jesus initiates. Jesus seeks them out. Jesus offers his help. He lovingly calls out to his unknowing disciples right in the midst of their discouragement and defeat. And what does he call them? Look at verse 4. Or 5, sorry. Children. What a sweet designation to be given by the Savior. It makes me think of John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, but to, him, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, what did he do? He gave the right to become children of God. That's what Jesus had done for these disciples. And, and all that gets communicated just by him saying children. I wonder if that's a word for some of, someone, some of us maybe, in here this morning. That you need to hear Jesus speak into the midst of your discouragement and despair and hear him say, not, what are you doing? Get a hold of yourself. But to hear him say, child. For those of us who have received Jesus and have believed in his life-giving name, we've been given the right to be called child. That's something he's chosen to do. The right to that status was purchased for us. It was purchased for you by the death of Jesus for your sins. You didn't have to earn that right. It was given to you, John tells us. That means that trying to be perfect won't keep that designation, that status. And it also means that any failure to be perfect is not going to make you forfeit that status. All that's required of you and of me as children of God is that we be fully surrendered to our Father, wholly dependent on Him. Not self-reliant, but humble, submitted to Him, growing in our desire to be satisfied in Him, as we learn to more fully trust and obey him. I wonder if that's a word for some of you this morning. And then maybe there's some of us here who have yet to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe you haven't professed faith in Christ. Maybe you aren't a Christian. And I think Jesus would want to invite you now to believe in his life-giving name. To turn from trusting in your own way of doing things, from trying to be your own savior, to stop trying to find ultimate purpose and satisfaction in your earthly relationships, to stop feverishly attempting to maintain your self-image and your self-worth, to stop sacrificing everything on the altar of your career. You don't have to keep pretending that life is okay. Life's not okay. You know it's not deep down inside. All that Jesus requires of you with this invitation is that you follow Paul's instruction in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does he say? You will be saved. That's the hope that you have as an unbeliever this morning. The invitation, respond to Christ. Become his child. Jesus calls out to his disciples from the shoreline. Verse 5, children, do you have any fish? 
And they answered him, no. Now, let's think about this question. Jesus isn't trying to find out if the disciples caught any fish, right? I mean, we know Jesus is omniscient. We know he knows all things. So this isn't like him saying, I wonder if they caught any fish. No, this is Jesus asking this question, and it's not as though he doesn't already know. He knew. Actually, in the original Greek, the phrase here, I don't know how to speak Greek, but the phrase is rendered more like, children, you don't have any fish, do you? It's more like that. It's the kind of question that assumes the answer. Like, this isn't working out for you guys, is it? Or that isn't giving you the kind of satisfaction you thought it would, is it? Or that wasn't how you thought this would turn out, was it? Or you thought you'd be further along than you are, didn't you? It's that kind of question. Jesus uses this question to reveal their hearts and to get them to confess their sinful self-reliance. Why? Because he wants his children to know our main point, that fruitfulness in their mission requires reliance on him as their Messiah. Look at verse 6, the beginning of verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And you will find some. Again, I'm not a fisherman. Made that very clear this morning. You'll never hear me boasting about my fishing lures or my tackle boxes or the best counterweights. And even as I was typing that, I was like, I don't even know what the names of things fishermen would be able to boast in. Uh, but, but just pick a different category. Pick your category. You know, For me, maybe it's piano or basketball or uh, detecting a good batch of french fries. I, I'm sure each of us can think of an area in our lives that we think, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. Um, and, and that's also our problem, isn't it? We're, we're also pretty good at being proud. Uh, I just know how quickly pride wants to well up, swell up in my heart when someone tries to offer me an opinion unsolicited about how they think I should go about doing the thing that I think I'm pretty good at. I mean, can you relate to that? Um, especially if it's some stranger that I never met. Uh, I mean, imagine how easy it would have been for these fishermen to simply just ignore this unsolicited recommendation from a stranger a hundred yards on the shoreline. I mean, who, who does this guy think he is? We know this sea like the back of our hands. We know where the fish typically bite. We already tried all those places. They ain't biting. You don't think we know how to cast our own nets? We've been sweating out here all night, and now you want to come out here offering us your fishing tips? I mean, it would have been so easy to just like disregard this guy. But that's just it. That isn't how they respond at all. At least not out loud. Maybe they did it in their hearts. But at least what John records for us is, is this. Look at, look at the second half of verse 6. This is how they respond. They don't even say anything. So they cast it. So they, so they cast it. That's all they do. They hear some stranger and they just cast the net. They obey him. They cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Remember, they still don't know that that stranger is Jesus talking to them. If Jesus had already revealed himself as the one giving this command, it would make total sense to us why they would have obeyed him, right? It's Jesus. But they don't know it's him, and they obey anyway. Why in the world, after hours of fishing, with nothing to show for it, do they suddenly choose to listen to a stranger telling them to cast their nets on the right side of their boat? Why do they do that? Well, James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on John, gives us his opinion this is what he says. Why do they cast on the right side? Because that was the side they were directed to by Jesus. If Jesus had said the left side, there would have been fish there. They would have swarmed there from every part of the Lake of Galilee. So anxious would they have been to be caught. The point is not where the work is to be done or how it is to be done. It is whether it is being done under Christ's direction and in obedience to him or by our own wisdom and initiative. These disciples had labored all night in their own wisdom and initiative. And now, even though they didn't even realize it, Christ was directing them and summoning them to obey his command to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. And they do. <laughs> and the fish are found. That's, that's such a good lesson for us to remember. When Christ gives us a command to do something and we respond in obedience He's going to bless that because it's his command. Remember, fishing in the Gospels, it's always more than fishing, always about more than fishing. 
is these disciples, they had literally been fishing, so it's, it's not like they're not actually fishing. They are. They're fishing. Uh, and, but this wasn't Jesus trying to give them some lesson in good fishing techniques. Fishing, as we see all over the Gospels, it was a symbol for evangelism. From the very outset of their call, Jesus had commissioned these disciples to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. He had taken these fishermen and recommissioned them to be fishers of men. That was the specific mission they had been called to do. But Jesus wanted to remind them that they would never be fruitful in this mission, in this calling, if they didn't learn to rely on the wisdom and power and presence of their Messiah. And that wasn't news to them, was it? Had they heard that before? Remember Jesus' words back to them in John 15? Go ahead and turn there. John 15, just a couple pages back. John 15, 5. This is as they sat around the table in the upper room. This is what Jesus said to them. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's pretty clear. (laughs) You want your life to bear fruit? Jesus says, abide in me. You want your life not to bear fruit? Then do everything you want to apart from him. But Jesus says, abide in me. Learn to recognize my voice, Jesus says. As you read and memorize and plant my word deep inside your heart, So that you can be quick to cast your net wherever my word commands. That's what abiding in him looks like. So I just ask the question, where where do you need to hear Christ remind you to rely on him for fruitfulness in the ministry he's called you to? Just think of all those categories, teenagers and young marrieds and singles and workplace and senior saints. Where do you need to hear Christ remind you to rely on him for fruitfulness in the ministry he's called you to. The immediate application, I don't want to lose sight of this, the immediate application of this was Jesus teaching his disciples a lesson about evangelism. So that was the immediate context. That's the, the main point. And that certainly applies to us today. I mean, we, we are called as Christians to be evangelists. It applies to you and to me as followers of Christ. We are always needing to be casting our nets wide at the command of Jesus. We always need to be obeying his voice and trusting him for the fruit, not getting discouraged when we don't see those that we share the gospel with immediately coming to saving faith. If Jesus says, cast your net on the right side of the boat, then cast your net on the right side of the boat, even if you don't see fish flopping around in it. (laughs) Even if everyone else has their nets on the left side of the boat. Even if it appears all the fish are biting somewhere else. Even if it means you're going to be questioned or mocked or disregarded for your submission to Christ's command. Cast your net, church. May may we be a church that casts our net where Christ commands. And how do we do that? We do that by abiding in our Messiah, by relying upon him, and by trusting him to provide the blessing of fruitfulness, not from us trying to figure out how to make fruit grow out of nothing. I think there's just another lesson that we can learn, and that's going to be in in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Okay, so what do we see here? We see John, who all throughout this gospel, he's been referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Um, So John is the first that we see to finally realize who this guy has been that's been speaking to them from the shoreline. And I wonder, as he's kind of making this realization, I wonder if it's because he had a sudden deja vu. Everybody know what that means, deja vu? I don't know if that's like, that's not a New Orleans term, is it? Okay, deja vu, sorry. I know we have French stuff that happens in New Orleans. I just didn't know if you West Texas people knew what deja vu meant. All right, I'm sorry if I offend anybody. I was not trying to do that. Um, all right, so I just wonder, are they having a deja vu moment here? Is John remembering something that feels really similar to what is happening right now? 
because uh, so much of what had just taken place, it, it probably did feel familiar to him. He was there the day a very similar encounter with Jesus had taken place a few years earlier at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And maybe you remember this. If you turn with me, let's, uh, this is a kind of lengthier section. Turn to Luke 5. Luke chapter 5, and just listen to this account. So this would have happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, this, is, this is not at the same time that Jesus is appearing. So it's not like a synoptic kind of thing where it's like the same story just told in two different places. This is a, a whole separate event that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he's calling his disciples. But just listen to how much similarity there is. Luke chapter 5, verse 1, on one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon is Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he, Jesus, sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. That sounds familiar. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, that sounds familiar, and took nothing, that also sounds familiar, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, that sounds familiar, and their nets were breaking. That's not familiar, we'll see that next week. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came, and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Okay, so lots of similarity there, but some differences. I can just imagine once John kind of picks his jaw up off the ground, he lets out this shout, it's the Lord. Like, guys, remember, it's the Lord. That, that's him. That's the Lord. And, and then that seems to kind of click for Peter. So Peter, and he, he's apparently been working in the boat all night in just a little, little less than his uh, undergarments. <laughs> but John tells us that he puts on his outer garments and he throws himself into the sea. I don't know about you, but I don't normally put on more clothes when I'm getting into the, the swimming pool, but maybe Peter was thinking, I at least want to be half decent when I get to Jesus. Uh, but what's most important to notice here are these two, in all the similarities of these two passages, there's these differences that are happening here uh, between Luke 5 and John 21. In Luke 5, when Simon, remember that's Peter, that's Peter's name before Jesus began to call him Peter, when Simon obeys the word of Jesus, resulting in such a large number of fish being caught in their nets that two boats couldn't even haul, Simon, what does he do? He falls down on his knees before Jesus, and he says, get, get away from me, Jesus. I, I can't be near you. I, I'm too sinful. Get away. But is that how he responds in John 21? Look at verse 6 in John 20. I'm sorry, not 6, 7 and 8 in John 21. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. And what does he do? He doesn't back away from the Lord. He doesn't try to go hide himself in the hull of the boat. He throws himself into the sea. And that's not to kill himself, to drown. That's because he's swimming to the shore. He's getting to Jesus as fast as he can. Instead of backing away, he dives headfirst into the water. Maybe he thought the boat was going to take too long to get there. <laughs> In Luke 5, Peter was a sinful man. He admitted that. Just being in the presence of Jesus made Peter want to cower away in shame. But by John 21, what do we know about Peter? We know that Peter had publicly denied Jesus. That, I have to imagine, would have caused Peter to be tempted to carry an even greater weight of guilt and shame than he would have had back in Luke 5. The difference is that in John 21, Peter knows Jesus has died for Peter's denial. Jesus had paid the penalty for Peter's sins. Peter, as he stood on that boat off the shores of Galilee, he knew he had been set free from guilt and shame. 
Peter no longer needed to cower in fear of what Christ might think of him. Peter knew what Christ thought of him. Peter knew he was forgiven. His status in Christ's eyes had been changed forever. He had gone from being a rebel to being redeemed, from being guilty to being pardoned, from being a denier of Jesus to being a worshiper of Jesus. And Christian, isn't isn't that your story? Isn't that the story of each of us who have placed our faith in the saving name of Jesus Christ? We sang it this morning. What love could remember no wrongs we've done? Not most of them, no wrongs. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they're many. But his mercy is more. And then was the chorus say? Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. And Peter's new status, it's not, it's, it doesn't demand the response that he did in Luke 5. It demands a new response. Peter saw an opportunity to draw near to his resurrected Jesus. And he doesn't even think twice about it. Peter wanted to be where Jesus was. When he realizes that Jesus is the stranger on the shore, nobody has to tell Peter what to do. He doesn't need a pep talk. He doesn't need to first feel the need to run a risk analysis. He doesn't wait till he's got everything figured out and all the loose ends neatly tied. He doesn't even let 100 yards of swimming the open ocean discourage him. That would discourage me. But he doesn't let that happen. He throws himself into the sea in order to get to his Savior. I think what John's highlighting here is that this is the kind of heart posture we should have as we pursue Christ, as we abide in him, as we seek to abide in him, as we seek to rely on him. Abiding in Jesus isn't just some sleepy, tranquilized state, like something just shy of dozing off to sleep. (laughs) That's not what that looks like. We need to be alert on mission. We need to be ready. We need to Uh, I'm sorry, abiding in Jesus takes energy and intentionality and effort and purpose. Casting our nets, it takes initiative, action. It's messy work. It's hard work. It's sweaty work. But this is what it calls to be on, this is what it means to be called on mission, to have focus and purpose and drive to see the lost saved, the lost that are in our homes, the lost that are in our families, the lost who are in our friend groups and our workplaces and our city and our nation, the lost in the world in Israel and Ukraine and Russia, wherever Christ commands you to cast the net of the gospel into whatever sphere of life he's assigned to you, church, let this passage encourage us. Let's cast our nets. But let's not cast them. I think this is the warning. Let's not cast them in our own strength. Let's rely on the faithfulness and the wisdom and power of the Messiah to give the fruitfulness of the casting of our nets. Because we need to remember that the fruitfulness of our mission, in our mission, requires the reliance, requires us to rely on our Messiah. So how do you need to respond to the Savior on the shore today? You can come up, Stephen. Is Jesus saying to you, you don't have any fish, do you? Is that what Jesus is saying? You don't have any fish, do you? You've been trying really hard to be fruitful in life. You've been trying really hard to battle that sin. You've been trying really hard to share the gospel with that friend or coworker. You don't have any fish, do you? Maybe you need to admit that you've been casting your net in your own wisdom and initiative and strength. Where is he commanding you to cast your net? Maybe, maybe that's a question to ask. Lord, where do where you want me to cast my net? In what ways are you maybe needing to abide in him as you cast your net and trust him for the fruit? Maybe you're getting anxious or worried or discouraged because you don't see fruit. And this morning, Jesus is saying, keep casting and keep trusting. Where are you hesitant to respond like Peter did? To the presence of Jesus. Or maybe as I was talking to unbelievers who might be with us this morning, maybe, maybe the response is, as you listened to the text this morning, you, you want to respond to Jesus' invitation to become his child. Praise God if that's where you're at. And if that is where you're at, please talk to somebody. Come talk to me. Talk to one of our members here. We'd love to, to 
rejoice with you, to help you kind of take some first steps in that path, um, to pray with you. Fruitfulness in our mission requires reliance on our Messiah. Sovereign Grace Church, I, I want us to be a church. I want to be a member of this church that has this kind of posture, abides in Christ, but is always looking to advance the gospel in whatever ways God gives us. And I know I, I don't do that well enough. There's, there's an aspect of responding to this message I think is repentance. That's saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for trusting in myself. I'm sorry for the way that I've relied on myself. I'm sorry for thinking that I can be self-sufficient, Lord. Maybe that's how you need to respond this morning. We've got some prayer team members, I think Brandon and Mari, you guys are up, and Casey Miller. They're gonna come, you guys can come on down and be here. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. This is, this is a special moment that we have as a congregation. And maybe this isn't like a familiar thing to you. Maybe the, the church tradition that you grew up uh, was very like quiet at this point and very personal and private. But man, we, we love you. Uh, this is an opportunity where, where we can minister to one another in prayer. Uh, and, and the Lord promises really incredible things when his spirit works in that kind of uh, environment where, where there's a, the ministry, the laying on of hands. Uh, so I just encourage you, if there's, um, if there's a way that you, you felt called to respond to the Lord, maybe, maybe come and do that up here. Make action. Remember we talked about action. Peter, Peter didn't stay in the boat and say, like, oh, great, that's Jesus. I love no, he jumped out. Now, I'm not saying that this is the only way that you can respond is if you come down at the altar. That's not what I'm saying. But for some of us, maybe that's the step of faith that we need to, to take to stir up uh, faithfulness in our soul. So just know it's, it's open. We're going to sing. Stephen's going to lead us in a song that's going to help us to, to put our trust in the faithfulness of the Lord. Not, not in what we see, not in the enemies that are surrounding us, not in the unfruitfulness that we experience in our nets, <laughs> uh, but in the Lord. My soul will trust in the Lord. So let's sing this together. Actually, let's pray. Look, can I pray first and then we can? Let's pray. Spirit of God, thank you for your word. Lord, it, it never, you, you promised this, it never returns void. Lord, so we trust that, that what you wanted to speak to us today is what you wanted to speak to us, Lord. And, um, or whatever was unhelpful, help us to forget that. <laughs> whatever was helpful, Lord, plan it in us change us. Lord, we don't want to be Christians who could be accused of coming to church every Sunday and like a sponge just getting more liquid stuffed inside of our fibers. Lord, we, we want to be Christians who are growing, who are, who are being changed and conformed to your image. Lord, and I think this text wants to conform us. Lord, so would you conform us? Make us people who, who, who aren't so much about trying to make fruitfulness come out of our own hands, Lord, but who are abiding in our Savior. Help us to rely on you, Lord, to abide in you, to respond to your commands. Help us to trust your sufficiency. Lord, I do pray for, uh, for all those seasons that, we, uh, that I addressed at the beginning of the message, Lord, that, that you would give a fresh sense of faith in each of those missions and each of those seasons of life. Lord, that even as they go home today, uh, that, that there would just be like a pep in their step, not because they... They got a motivational message preached to them, Lord, because you met them through the preaching of your word and you, you filled them with faith. Would you do that? Lord, fill us with faith. Lord, what a glorious opportunity and privilege it is to serve you. Lord, help us to be more faithful. We pray. Amen.